Welcome back to Hearsay, your local and student-run podcast on CJSW 90.9 FM. As always, Hearsay only provides legal information and not legal advice. If you require assistance, please contact a lawyer. We're here broadcasting from Calgary, Alberta, on the traditional territories of the Blackfoot Confederacy, home to the people of the Treaty 7 region and the Métis Nation of Alberta, Region 3. My name is Brian, and I have the pleasure of introducing two of my classmates, Selwyn and Ryan, as they explore the surface of the Residential Tenancy Act and how it might apply to a lease of your own. Today, they're joined by Professor Jeanette Watson-Hamilton from our very own University of Calgary Faculty of Law. She's taught property law here for many years, including landlord and tenant law. She's been researching and writing about residential tenancy issues in Alberta on the University of Calgary's ablog.ca which is spelled A-B-L-A-W-G dot C-A. This episode is part two of our discussion with the professor about the Residential Tenancy Act in Alberta and the different ways that it might apply to you. Find the Hearsay podcast online to see what she said last time about the general relationship between the Residential Tenancy Act and a typical lease. Because this is part two, we're just going to jump right into where we left off last time with the professor talking about the ways that a tenant might find themselves in violation of their own lease. So there are a lot of ways a tenant can be in a substantial breach. Um, In terms of what's in the act, um, the first thing a tenant promises is to pay rent when due period. We've already discussed that. So that is the most common reason for a landlord looking to evict a tenant is uh, not paying rent. Um, But they also promise, um, well, they promise that they will not substantially interfere with the rights of the landlord or other tenants, which we've already discussed in the context of the landlord's promises. Uh, They promise that they will not um, do anything illegal in the rented premises. They won't endanger any people or property um, in their place or in the common areas. They won't damage the premises or the common areas. They promise they will keep the place in reasonably clean condition and not not doing so is a substantial breach like everything else. And they promise to vacate at the end of the tenancy. So there's a lot of ways a tenant can be in substantial breach, which does allow the landlord to give them um, varying lengths of notice to leave um, or to go to court and get them to leave. So that's a pretty big discrepancy in terms of the numbers of things that are a substantial breach for a tenant. Uh, you men- yep. mentioned some of the um, the ways that a landlord can evict a tenant or get them to leave. Is there also asymmetry there? Is it easier for a landlord to terminate a lease than it is for a tenant? Oh, it is because there's a lot of different things a tenant must do in order not to um, be liable to have their lease terminated. The landlord only has to maintain minimum housing standards. And that sounds like it's pretty easy to do for a landlord. Just no big public health breaches, basically. There actually are a lot of um, a lot of residential or a lot of rented premises that are probably in breach of the minimum housing standards. And that's mainly things like the size of the windows in a basement suite. You know, okay. if it hasn't been remodeled with that in mind, if it's just kind of an older house, um, that would get a landlord in trouble. So if, if the tenant wanted to make trouble. 
For more information on leases and the Residential Tenancy Act, you can take a look at the Leases and Agreements resources put together by the Centre for Public Legal Education Alberta. We'll drop a link to this in our show notes that you can find online later. If you have any questions about the rights and obligations between landlords and tenants, you can take a look at the Rights and Responsibility of Landlords and Tenants video put together by the Edmonton Community Legal Centre. For any other general questions you might have, you can always check out the Residential Tenancy Act Handbook by Service Alberta, the Guide to Law of Landlord and Tenant by the Student Legal Services of Edmonton, and finally www.landlordandtenant.org. Just give any of those a quick Google search and you should be able to find them pretty easily. As a word of caution, just make sure that all the resources that you do find online are Alberta specific because the rights and responsibilities in residential tenancies can vary province to province. So we've been kind of hinting around what happens when things go sour in the landlord-tenant relationship, but let's dive into that a little bit more. Where are the landlords or the tenants going to have these disputes resolved? Well, they have three choices in Alberta. They have the Residential Tenancy Dispute Resolution Service, um, which I'll call the um, DRS, Dispute Resolution Service, or they can go to provincial court or they can go to the Court of Queen's Bench. Um, And that the landlord or the tenant, whoever's initiating the action, they get to choose. Um, The cost is different for them. the DRS is the cheapest at $75 compared to say $200 for provincial court. Um, Queen's Bench should be more. Um, you need a lawyer, you don't at the DRS. It's set up for self-represented people. Um, provincial court, you don't necessarily need a lawyer, but um, it's a good idea. And Queen's Bench, you must pretty much must have a lawyer. It would be a nightmare to go to it if you were unrepresented. Um, and how much time. You can get into the DRS usually within a few weeks, um, sometimes even quicker. Uh, Provincial court, last I heard, if you wanted a trial, you're waiting more than a year, and that was before the pandemic, you were waiting a year. Um, Queen's Bench, it depends on what type of application you've got, uh, but you could be waiting a long time. So almost everybody picks the DRS. It, pre-pandemic, it did about 10,000 cases a year or over 10,000 in Alberta. They are now doing about, well, they're they're back up to about 650 a month. So they are doing a lot of hearings now. Um, The difference is before phone hearings used to be an option. Now all they're doing is phone hearings. And I do mean telephone. And preferably not even from their point of view, not even a cell phone, but a landline. These are not video. These are telephone hearings um, with the um, dispute resolute, the the tenancy dispute officer, the landlord and the tenant um, and whoever the witnesses might be. People have loaded their paperwork and evidence up to the DRS website. And so everybody goes there to view them. Um, They've been doing this long before um, the pandemic required. Um, My complaint, if you've read any of my A blog posts, is we don't know what's happening in the DRS. We don't know if they're enforcing the law. We don't know how they're enforcing the law. 
basically they give their oral reasons to the parties at the end of a hearing. That's it. Um, they've started publishing some of the decisions. They started in January 2020 and they went um, retroactive to put in 2019 ones, but they're only publishing less than 1% of their decisions. Oh, wow. And there's only a few tenancy dispute officers, well, really only two that publish their decision, decisions. So while we know what they're doing, um, we have no idea what's going on. Um, I do hear things from um, student legal assistants from our students um, that represent people. And um, there's also appeals some, uh, sometimes to the Court of Queen's Bench or Provincial Court where it's clear that the law is not necessarily being enforced. Um, but generally speaking, um, this rather non-transparent dispute resolution service is what's available and what people use. So if I'm a tenant, and I'm unhappy with anything um, in my lease, and I go to the DRS, I have no idea what's going to happen because I can't look at what they've ordered in previous situations. Well, I mean, you, you, you can look at, say, out of the 10,000, you can look at the 40 decisions that were published for that year. Um, and there may or may not be something on, you know, say late charges for checks or things like that. Um, because things on Canly don't show up on Google, I do try to write about our um, DRS decisions to put them on a blog so they do become searchable um, and to comment on them and to set out the law. But um, sometimes it feels like, um, I mean, they're just very poor conditions in which to predict when you have less than 1% of the cases and basically one or two people are writing them and the rest aren't. Um, it's very hard to know what goes on. Are there any limits on the things that can be ordered at the uh, DRS? Um, yeah, the DRS is one major limitation and that is that if the case involves um, a human rights complaint. So say termination is connected to a protected ground such as disability, for example, um, or a constitutional claim, which is far rarer, then the DRS cannot hear it. You have to go to provincial court or the Court of Queen's bench. Um, and so I think what happens is that tenants who might have a human rights claim probably tend to not probably tend to drop it because they don't have a year to wait for it to be resolved. Even the Human Rights Commission, you could go there, but they're backed up. And is that a, a thing that's happened? So there, that's there's definitely some happened. enforcement problems. Is that just because of COVID and the backup that has resulted or has that always been the case? No, the, the backlog at Provincial Court, Queen's Bench and... Um, and the Human Rights Commission existed long before COVID. As far as a trend goes, do you feel that the DRS is going to be publishing more cases into the future to give landlords and tenants a clearer picture? Or do you see this as kind of just an experiment right now? Well, I'm not sure. I mean, the problem is that um, the way they're doing it now is that if, a, if there's a written decision anyway, 
that, and it's one they can make anonymous, then they will consider it for publication. But as I said, the vast majority of these cases are um, the, the tenancy dispute officer gives oral reasons immediately at the end of the phone call, at the end of the hearing, and just gives them to the landlord and tenant, right? And then there's an order comes out, but the order has no reasons. The only time they um, do reasons for decision is when they don't make the decision right away, when they have to think about it. So when it's more complicated, usually. Um, and then they have to go to, you know, it takes, it's, it's some trouble to create your written reasons. Um, so that the pool from which the publishable decisions are drawn is pretty small. And there are definitely some um, tenancy dispute officers who are much more inclined um, towards the goals of transparency and access to justice and who do their part um, by giving a lot of written reasons for decision. There's one, one tenancy dispute officer who writes 60 to 65% of the decisions every year that are available. Um, and another one who does more than one or two. But most of them write nothing, it seems. Or if they're writing nothing, um, it is not being put on onto Canley for other reasons, such as maybe they can't make it anonymous. Um, I guess we have time for one last question here. Okay. Let's go into what remedies might uh, the DRS provide. So if a landlord or a tenant you know, seeks a remedy under this service, what can they expect to get out of this? There are four things that a tenant can ask for. Um, one is um, an abatement of rent uh, to the extent that they lose part of the benefit of their, of their lease. So um, often that's done on a square footage basis. What percentage did you lose? Um, uh, so abatement of rent is one. It's not a generous remedy. Damages, um, say for a landlord who comes into your apartment and snoops through your, your drawers or things like that, damages are available for that. There's compensation for performing the landlord's obligations. So let's say painting is required and, and the tenant does painting or the tenant hires a plumber to fix something. Um, you can ask the court to compensate you for the cost of performing the landlord's obligations. And lastly, termination. Um, if the landlord's breach is significant enough that termination should be terminated or that the tenancy should be terminated. Um, so that it's up to the judge to decide if it's serious enough to terminate the tenancy early. Um, on the landlord's part, they can recover arrears of rent. They can get possession of the premises um, if a tenant fails to move out when they should. They can get compensation um, for the use and occupation. If it's a substantial breach, they can terminate the tenancy and they can recover damages uh, for things um, for things that the tenant might have done to the premises. From hearing you talk about this, like how from an admin law perspective is it acceptable for them to have no written decisions? Um, admin law doesn't actually require written decisions of it. I mean, these are administrative tribunals. 
In Ontario, Quebec, and BC publish a lot of their decisions. BC probably publishes the most. Um, but even in Ontario, it's, it's a fraction, and it's really hard to tell what fraction it is. But if they publish, say, 18,000 decisions in one year, it's Ontario. And you, if you can find something that says, yeah, they heard 100,000 cases, I mean, nobody's good. And there are some provinces that do not publish anything. So if you're asking a court to review, um, all they would have is the transcript. Have is, so they do have the transcript available, but those aren't published. They, um, they haven't, they make a recording of their phone conversations or the hearing. Um, so you're on speakerphone, obviously. And um, the person who wants to go to court has to pay for a transcript of that uh, recording. Oh, you have to pay for it as well. Are you allowed to record on your end or are you told you're not allowed to do anything like that? I think you're probably not allowed, but that would be under the criminal and privacy legislation. You, you could with consent of all the parties, but, um, and I'm sure the DRS gets consent of all the parties um, before they do it. I'm sure it's actually part of the application form. Um, but no, it's one of the, um, one of my A blogs is about how expensive appeals are. And part of the problem is the transcripts. Yeah. So we're super out of time here. So thank you so much. This has been amazing. Um, and I'm sure we'll see you around the school. Yeah, thanks for joining us. Okay. Thanks again, Jeanette. Glad to be there. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today's episode. For further information on tenancy dispute resolution services, take a look at one of these help resources available online. Pro Bono Law Alberta, or PBLA, is a nonprofit organization that promotes opportunities for free legal services to low-income Albertans seeking legal assistance. Check out the website to see how they can connect you with someone who might be able to help. You can also find out more about the residential tenancy dispute resolution process by Google searching residential tenancies process and clicking on the albertacourts.ca link. This site will help guide you through the process of dispute resolution in Alberta. The Residential Tenancy Dispute Resolution Service, or RTDRS, provides dispute resolution services for residential tenancies outside of court. Take a look online to see how to apply. They can be found online on the alberta.ca government website. Just Google search RTDRS Alberta and you'll be able to find it pretty easily. As a reminder, make sure that any resources that you find online are specific to Alberta as each province may handle dispute resolution differently. We hope you tune in next time to the Hearsay Podcast by Pro Bono Students Canada. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>